This is Fred Venturini, and you're listening to The Booked Podcast, which is way better than being on fire. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Sedden. This episode is part one of a special two-part uh, Booked event. Um, booked went on another road trip. Our road trips are so much fun. Man, it's been a long time since we got on a trip. Yeah, that so both we, of us uh, went on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We uh, we went uh, goddamn near cross country all the way to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah, that's an we we crossed a border. We did, and and Rob, for people who aren't familiar with the Midwest area, would you like to tell them exactly how far we went? Um, is it even fifty miles? I think it's. I don't think hour. it's. I don't think it's fifty miles. It's like an hour and a half drive. <laughs> it's a long. It's a long way for me to go for something. So you know, it had to be good. Yeah. Um, Crime right. Spree Magazine hosted hosted um, Noir at the Cantina, and we'll talk more about that um, that naming structure a little later. I think, um, but their own Noir at the Bar, first one I believe in the Milwaukee area, like ever. That's correct. They are the first to bring Noir at the Bar to the city of Milwaukee. Um, I guess fittingly so, since they are a crime spree magazine and they do have uh, for a pretty long history with um, a lot of the crime writers that are that are the, the people, the pool of people, the talent that uh, that your typical Noir at the Bar event will draw from. I touched somebody who probably touched Robert Crace. You touched. Who are you touching? Was it in, was it a I, bad touch? No, 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 no. It's not always bad touch. Um, John Jordan. That's right. Yeah, but by touch, I think I think we shook hands. I made I made it a point to make sure because <laughs> that hand probably shook Robert Crace's hand. Fucking love me some Robert Crace. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the history of us um, hooking up and knowing the the crime spree folk uh, actually dates back a couple years to the. Which apparently everything does, because this is where we met Seth Harwood, too. The wrong kind of reading at the Galloway Arms back for AWP Chicago 2012, where uh, we first met, very briefly, Tim Hennessy from the Crime Spree magazine. And um, that's that's where we got to know each other just a tiny bit. Then um, I bumped that to him later up in Milwaukee for an event at uh, Boswell Books for Frank Bill when he had Donnybrook coming out. And uh, we just kind of have talked more and more over the interwebs since then and um yeah when we found out about this event we definitely wanted to go to it absolutely and of course because i'm afraid to be in a car with rob alone um we we had uh we had a co-pilot that's right um longtime friend of the podcast uh booked anthology contributor and um, what qualified him to be in the book anthology, he was at the Noir at the Bar that we went to in St. Louis and recorded for everybody. Um, and then later on, he was at the booked um, live event for the, the release of our anthology. So we've known Kevin also for um, a couple of years now, and he um, was good enough to join us, not wearing a white baseball cap, which is kind of his signature move, I thought. Like, I thought you wouldn't recognize him when, when he got in the car. <laughs> who's this, who's this who's guy? Who's this guy? Who's this guy? At any rate... Yeah, let's not forget another person that was in attendance um, who's kind of a longtime friend of ours was uh, Mr. Kent Gowron. Who we may drive up there by himself because we don't really like him that much. <laughs> we were tweeting back and forth at each other kind of while we were both on our trip up there, <laughs> which was kind of goofy. But uh, yeah, he did drive separately, although I live very close to him in the city. Um, we had already had the, uh, the, the, the Kevin Helmick plan in effect, so we yeah. couldn't coordinate with uh, Kent. Yep. 
love Ken Gower, and I'm glad he was there. And uh, and, and he kind of felt like he was a bodyguard. Like he was like the I think the more intimidating looking one of of, of the group, right? Of our our little group. Dude, yeah, he's got way more arm tattoos than I do. Yeah, so I felt just fine walking through downtown Milwaukee late at night back to our car because Kent was there. Yeah, past that weird gas station slash drive-through Greek restaurant slash. Dude, what was with that coffee shop that was playing like hits of the '80s, and there were like people dancing in like a second-floor coffee shop? I don't. So goddamn weird. That place, Anodyne, right? That was the name of it. I believe that was it. Yeah. So if you're ever in Milwaukee, that's not the place to go read your book and have a cup of coffee. Apparently, we're walking past it, and we're like, "Why did we just do a reading in a pizzeria? Look at this place." Yeah, as we're listening to like Cindy Lauper blaring out the windows like eleven thirty at night. Uh, it's good stuff. Oh, that's great stuff. So the three of us trekked up to Milwaukee to Times Square Pizzeria, um, six oh five South First Street, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. In case you're looking for a slice of pizza in or in the Milwaukee area, did I do that commercially enough? Was that? That was very yeah. That was good. Would you like to know how many free slices of pizza I received for that plug? <laughs> zero. zero like yeah. everything else we've ever received for this podcast yeah, any rate yeah. so we went up there for Nora at the bar and uh ruth jordan hosted the first half of what you're going to hear this evening all right so we're going to talk a little bit more about the readings after you hear them but just really quickly this is what you're in for uh starting out is the host uh the first host of the evening ruth jordan who reads uh, a short story called little blue pill um from an anthology called expletive deleted Following that, Brian Cortermus, I think I got that right. I so think I nailed that. Um, <laughs> you did. Who reads Load, uh, a story from Crime Spree magazine in 2006. Um, I, I was going to explain what Load was about, but I think you guys will just hear it in the story. <laughs> and then the third person, the third and final reader that you're going to hear in this episode is Frank Wheeler Jr., um, who reads a few different things the first is an excerpt from his book the wowzer and then there's a couple of smaller things that he's going to read from his i think upcoming or recently released book the good life mm-hmm. so with uh without further ado here's ruth jordan crime spree magazine noir at the bar welcome everyone to milwaukee's first noir at the bar Noir at the bar for those of you who don't know and i assume everybody in this room probably does was um, an event started by Jedediah Ayers, Scott Phillips, and a bunch of other wonderful crime fiction writers where people could gather together, read their stories not only to each other, but to people who might be casually interested in noir and have a nice alcoholic beverage or a soda pop of their choice. Tonight you can also have pizza or sandwiches and we'd like to thank our good friend Sean Hanniger. John gallantly stepped in when the location we were going to hold this event closed rather abruptly. So, and as much as we hate that that restaurant is gone, we're so glad Sean's been our neighbor for years now. So, continue to order food, chocolate, drinks, and we are going to begin the shindig. And the first reader up is Ruth Jordan. Who's really hoping she can see with these reading glasses. (laughs) So, here you go. The Little Blue Pill. God, baby, you're the best. 
Only when I'm with you, Tom. I began to slowly unbutton the shimmering silk. Minimalist black for the outer layer of date wear, but underneath it was hot pink. I love it when you take charge. Dance for me, girl. I began a subtle swaying of the hips, accentuated by lacy boy shorts. Turned a few drawn-out pirouettes so Tom could appreciate the entire view. Eye contact was made between us. Tom already on the bed, taking it all in. I unhooked the bra, tossing it nonchalantly onto the floor, and began to stroke my nipples. Let my left hand wander south and make slow circles, spiraling inwards. Tom's eyes turned into focused slits, his breathing audible now. He was mine. Are you ready for me, baby? I was trying for Bacall. His reply was a whimper. Christ, they're all the same. I straddled him now, hand to zipper releasing his downfall. Rock solid and fully at attention, it quivered as I took him in, teasing at first, and then all of it. Baby, that's so good, but you, what about you? Don't worry, love, you'll last all night. And with that, I slid my head to the bedside table that was a temporary house to my purse, wrapped a manicured hand around my newest sex toy, and embedded the number six scalpel into Tom's carotid artery. Life left him quickly, and Tom's body fluids flowed away. He stayed hard for me all night, and I rode a wave of orgasms like none I'd ever experienced. Looking down at the body that had been known as Tom, I tried to think it through. Knew then that I wanted to do this again, but boy was I fucked. Too busy planning last night's scenario, I hadn't planned how to get away with it. My car was still at the restaurant where I started with friends. That was a plus. I met up with Tom two stops and three bottles of wine into the night. People knew that we were friendly, but because of our jobs, no one knew that we'd been sleeping together. We'd snuck away separately. I was hoping we hadn't been seen. That's a crapshoot, though, ain't it, Tom? 4.30 a.m. now, and Tom had volleyball at 9 on Saturdays. Play it by the numbers, girls, and we'll be okay. Fiber evidence, Victoria's Secret underwear. Ann Klein black shoes, first taken out of the box Friday afternoon. Good there, fiber's more common than a colt in January. The purse was more problematic. Someone might find something. A quick wipe down of surfaces didn't promise guarantees, but it was worth a shot. Looking down at the evening gloves that I had donned as part of my strippers game, thinking back to the evening before. I buckled the seatbelt, Tom, but you opened the door for me. Oh, and I flushed. You, my dear, are the problem. I'm all over you in this bed. What can we do? Talk to me, baby. Plastic sheeting in the garage left over from a drywall project. I wrapped him in one sheet. Duct tape really is helpful at times. Dragged him into the garage on another sheet, into the trunk. It's true about dead weight, Tom. Vacuum the now bare mattress. Put on a pair of Tom sweats, donned a t-shirt. Paper towel and Dawn detergent took care of the visible blood and were stuffed in an empty grocery bag. Rummaging through a closet offered up a pair of slippers. Clorox wipes. Then I vacuumed like an auric salesman. Made my way from the side of the bed to the driver's side of Tom's focus. Removed the bag and drove home in a stolen car with a body in the trunk. <coughs> Happenstance, an efficient 120-gallon water heater and an air compressor made it all work. They found Tom's body in his car on Wednesday morning. The department was sure he'd been murdered at home. His nearest neighbors had been gone that weekend, and there was almost no physical evidence. 
a few hairs that could belong to anyone, and a couple of pink fibers that didn't match anything in his home. The theory was someone had sought revenge, probably from Tom's time and vice. Ecstasy, inner peace, adrenaline, power, knowledge. My new game was like acid without the melting walls. The flashbacks were better. They just weren't enough. I set my sights on a great-looking defense attorney. George Wolfe had the greenest eyes I'd ever seen. Money eyes. Flamboyant in court, self-assured in real life. He'd been through a divorce the year before. There was a party at my house, and he stayed to help clean up. The dating was sporadic. George was involved in a high-profile case, too busy for romance. We exchanged phone sex at the end of business-related calls and promised a blowout at the end of George's case. He got the client off. It was evident that the man had indeed raped his victim, but the police had played around with search and seizure just a little too much. The jurors made everybody pay the price. I murmured congratulations and told George to come to me when he could. I'd have champagne waiting. It was past midnight when George came through the door, still high on the wind. Before you start, Trudy, I know the victim didn't get the justice she deserved, but the department has to start respecting the laws they uphold. I reached up to his lips, silenced him with my index finger, and walked him up the steps to the law. Dim lighting, Sinatra, and the promised champagne. George took in the setting and creamy lace for the very first time. His eyes got hungry and he started to talk. Trudy, I, we've talked enough, George. Dance with me, touch me, make love to me, but no more talk. I offered the blue aphrodisiac and saw the protest about to reach his lips. All night, George, all night. This dance was more subtle. A few turns to Sinatra, the gentle kisses of adolescence, and then frantic urges. Playing the submissive female that I knew George craved, staying in control only with the demanded silence. The irony of a speechless lawyer amused me. When George pulled the strap of my teddy down, I led him onto the floor. He tasted me then, still in the shirt and pants from a forgotten courtroom. He was a good lover, not losing, using his hands, but wandering everywhere with his tongue. When he got to my center, I gasped. Knew he felt the power. They were all the same. He attacked with an enthusiasm I seldom experienced. My excitement began to mount, different than his. Finally, from below, a groan and a smile. I pulled him up to my mouth and tasted my sex. Brought us both to our knees and began to unbutton his Stafford special blend. Coquette now, leaning us to our feet, helped George out of his trousers and guided him over to the wine in the waiting repose. A sheet scattered with rose petals, so easy. He never saw the ice pick coming. The bliss of the ride was sublime, and I took all the time I needed to reach climax. This time I knew how not to get caught. A couple of weeks later, Tom's partner Don poked his head into my office to catch up. We shared abbreviated histories promised to stay more in touch. As he was leaving, Don commented that he was glad Tom had had me for a friend. I returned the compliment and said we'd do drinks when I got back from my high school reunion. It seemed strange to be going back when everything was here now. I had to change my MO for the reunion. No one ever forgets high school history. Lover number two took the humble offering and was dead by the end of the weekend. I loved being alive. I wanted to share this darkness. Wallowed in not understanding myself rejoiced in being unique. Trying to analyze this was fruitless. Books on criminal psychology have no definition for this. Sometimes there was regret. No, that's wrong. In all honesty, the only thing I've regretted is I've felt no regret. It eats at me sometimes. I know there are sensations left for me to feel. 
Still, at times this past year, I know I've been as alive as anyone has ever been, and now I'm not alone anymore. Act two began on another Friday. I was daydreaming, remunerating, whatever you want to call it. I get my rocks off fucking dead guys, which is pretty sick. Are you talking to yourself, Trudy? Hey, Don, no. Well, yes, but you don't want to know. What brings you here? Margarita's girlfriend. We're going to go out, swap war stories, and drink too much. We went for Mexican, and the laughter flowed almost as fast as the tequila. Then shop talk. Two more dead girls, Don. Is it still being considered a coincidence? It's not your problem anymore, Trudes. Maybe one day they'll find a link, and the powers that be will have to admit you were right. For now, we have a bunch of dead sluts. He read my eyes, retreated quickly. Not what you wanted to hear. Sorry, how was the reunion? Amazing. People who wouldn't talk to me then wanted to hear all about me now. Trudy, the star, reborn. You were hot shit in high school, for a time. I looked at Don, thought of him dead. I was sexually charged. He felt the energy, shared it. We're out of here, Trudy. I'm gonna take you on a ride. The motel's, number was, the motel's name was a number. I had neither an offering nor a cleanup plan, and hell, I was horny. Don shut the door to the room, pushed me into a recliner. Right now, you look pretty damn fuckable. He yanked off my sweater. The buttons on my blouse flew across the room. Don turned me around and pulled up my skirt, ran me from behind, pushing my head into the chair's headrest. And I felt fear, glorious fear. And the rest you can read anytime. <laughs> Up next, I would like to introduce to you Brian Cordes. He comes to us from Detroit. Brian will be reading a short story from Crime Street. Cool! <laughs> and be sure to look for his debut novel. Murder Boy, coming from Polis Books in August. And this actually kind of relates to that because the last time I read it in Noir in the Bar, was in New York, and I read the first chapter from Murder Boy. But right now I'm writing the sequel, and it's on a very tight deadline, and so I've been thinking more about the sequel, which is actually based on this short story. It's called Load. It appears in issue 11 of Crime Spree magazine, and was my very first appearance in print after writing quite a few online short stories. So this is kind of an important story to me. Um, and when I made the deal for Murder Boy, the publisher said, um, I'd like to do this a two book deal. Do you think this is a series? And of course I said yes, even though I had no idea um, that it would ever be a series and gave him this short story and another short story that I had combined into one plot to mix all the characters together. And he loved it and signed me up for it. So that'll be appearing in January of 2015 from Paulus Books. So this story is called Load and um, it's about a sperm bank robbery, and that's really probably all you need to know. <laughs> a sperm bank? Randy Rhodes looked at his brother-in-law as they pulled into the parking lot of a rundown strip mall in the outskirts of Detroit. It's a fertility clinic, Daryl Abbott said. What's the difference? Well, there's, I mean, just shut up and come on. Randy tagged behind as they made their way into the Wayne County Fertility Center. You're gonna make me jack off in here, aren't you? Randy asked. This is sick, dude. You don't have to jack off, Daryl said holding the lobby door open. You just have to pretend so they don't pay as much attention to me. Nobody better watch me. 
There was only one man in the waiting room, and the staff was at skeletal capacity during the lunch hour. Daryl had planned this appointment with that in mind the last time he'd been there with Amy. They scheduled an appointment at the peak of the evening rush, and afterward, Daryl asked the nurse when the slowest time was for an appointment, because his wife hated crowds. That was before he knew about the specimen. How did you guys find this place anyway, Randy asked, while Daryl flipped through the channels on the TV hanging in a corner. Somebody Amy works with recommended it. Doesn't look like a place a millionaire would come to whack it. They're discreet, not like you. Now shut up. The other guy waiting was a big square of a man who looked like an ex-football player. He was wearing black dress pants and a tight yellow sweater and kept looking at Randy and Daryl. That guy's creeping me out, Randy said, leaning in to whisper to Daryl. He was here the last couple times Amy and I came too. He's fine. Randy avoided making eye contact with the man, and a few minutes later the nurse called up to the desk. She handed, called him up to the desk. She handed Randy an orange medical cup with a lid and a plastic bag with two dirty magazines, and it had a small tube of lubricant inside as well. Can I keep these? He asked, holding the magazines up. We don't reuse them, she said. In his little room, Randy tried not to think about his sister or Daryl while he had his penis in his hand. Sure, Daryl told him he didn't have to whack off, but since Randy was alone with the room with some lube and some fine magazines, it seemed like a waste not to. One of the magazines had pictures of slutty-looking women with enormous fake breasts and glamour photography lighting, while the other featured more natural-looking women. Randy had the natural one open in front of him on the counter while he concentrated on Miss April and her crotchless farm overalls. In the next room, Daryl's bag of magazines sat on the counter unopened. He was working a set of picks into the lock on a closet in his room that stored the overflow sperm that couldn't be held in the main freezer. When the door finally popped open, he heard the nurse bang on the door. Daryl made a couple of lustful grunts and moaned a bit, then waited. She didn't knock again, so he continued into the closet. There were several, there were several miniature freezers on the floor stacked on top of each other. If you didn't know any better, you'd assume the doctors were keeping a stash of meat or ice cream in the closet. Daryl knew the specimen was in one of the freezers because Amy told him about it later. This was all her idea. When she heard the nurses gossiping about a filthy rich donor specimen during her appointment, she realized it was a valuable, she realized it was a valuable commodity. The subject of kidnapping had actually come up several times as a solution to their current money woes, but the human element had always discouraged them. Amy didn't like people who would be involved to execute the plan, and Daryl hated the idea of having a kid running around the house. Amy was lazy enough as it was. If she'd get off the couch long enough to pick up a shift at McDonald's, he wouldn't be reduced to schemes like this to survive. He knew Amy wanted kids, and he'd come along to the fertility for treatment to appease her, but he hoped they wouldn't work. The doctor had given him suggestions to help him increase his sperm count, but he'd been doing things to himself to make sure the little bastard didn't stand a chance once they left him. The nurse knocked a second time while he had the specimen in his hand. He put it back and relocked the door with his picks, then told the nurse to enter. When she came into the room, she glanced at the unopened bag of magazines. Dale tapped the side of his head. I've got enough dirty pictures up here to keep me horny for years. Yes, well, there was something I wanted to talk to you about, she said. Oh, well, I guess that probably isn't the best thing to say in this place. Never know what a guy may shoot, right? There were some abnormalities with your sperm, Mr. Abbott. I told the wife there probably would be. I'm not proud of it, but back in my misspent youth, I experimented quite frequently with illegal drugs. I told her not to expect anything promising. These are artificial abnormalities. Huh? Somebody is intentionally abusing your sperm, Mr. Abbott. Hey, I grab my thingy and shake it around until the little boys come spitting out. That's abuse, but it ain't exactly intentional. I've noticed you and your wife when you come to the office. You fight frequently. I didn't know you were also a therapist, he said. This is quite common. The husband doesn't want to have kids, and the wife does, 
So he abuses his body in a way to kill off the sperm so they can't fertilize the wife's egg. I don't like where this is going, he said. You need to talk to your wife, Mr. Abbott. I would also suggest some marriage counseling before you continue with the fertility treatments. Daryl moved past the doctor and opened the door. I don't need some jizz specialist giving me marriage advice, thank you very much. I've told your wife what you've been doing. You need to talk to her. You told my wife I was killing my sperm? If I didn't tell her, then if you didn't tell her, things would be fine. Now she's going to be angry. This is the way I've handled... Expect to hear from my lawyer, Daryl said, pushing past the nurse. He pounded on Randy's door and yelled for him to finish. Just a mi minute, Randy grunted. Now, Daryl said. He was in the parking lot by the time Randy caught up to him, still adjusting his pants. There was a bulge in Randy's coat pocket, and Daryl pointed at it. What did you steal? It's mine, Randy said. Your what? My, my boys. You wanted me to hurry. You're sick. Get in the car. We're going to see Amy. But I'm hungry, Randy said. We'll get food later. There's a candy bar in the glove box. Randy knew better than to argue any further, so he dug through the glove box until he found a Snickers bar next to a small revolver. He didn't check the expiration date. He tore open the wrapper and swallowed the entire thing in two bites. They pulled up to Daryl's house a couple minutes later and both got out of the car. Stay here, Daryl said. But I want to put my boys in. Randy didn't bother continuing his protest because Daryl was already on the porch. While Daryl stormed through the house yelling for Amy, Randy went to the kitchen and put the cup with his sperm sample in the freezer. He quickly took it out though, remembering that Amy said sperm can survive in the container for up to four hours at room temperature, but they had to be frozen gradually. He wasn't exactly sure he wanted to freeze it, but somewhere in the back of his mind, Randy liked the idea of being a father. Before he could think about it any, any further, Amy came through the door and went straight for the knife rack next to him. Daryl was right behind her, but stopped when Amy spun around and had a chopping knife pointed at his neck. Randy put his sample on the counter and eased back into the living room. You'll never be a mother if you kill me, Daryl said. Amy inched closer to him and twisted the knife near his throat. You're joking about this? What do you expect? You've been killing my babies and you're joking about this? You're drunk, Amy. That's what the smell is, Randy thought, sitting on the couch looking for the television remote. His sister didn't normally hold her liquor well, and anytime she was junk, drunk, she threw up frequently. From the odor, Randy figured he was sitting pretty close to a recent batch. He found the remote under a ratty, quilted pillow and turned the TV onto the soap opera network. Daryl was the one to interrupt him the next time. As an old episode of The Young and the Restless started, Randy heard a slap and a grunt, then what he thought was the knife hitting the floor. Daryl came through the living room, dragging Amy by the hair. He pulled her behind the couch and pushed her to the floor. Look at that, Amy. That's what you do when you get drunk, he said. Randy twisted around on the couch to look behind and saw Daryl pushing Amy's face into a pile of vomit. You're like a baby yourself, and you want to be a mother? Randy was torn. He knew he should probably help his sister, but this was one of the old episodes with David Hasselhoff. Those were his favorite episodes. Apparently, Amy didn't need his help because she took her right arm and ran it up into Daryl's gut, sending him sputtering backward. She stood up and wiped the puke from her face with the sleeve of her robe, then swung at Daryl. Her punch got him right under the left eye and snapped his head back, but didn't do much damage. He returned the favor by punching her just below the belly. You think this is all my fault, he said. I never said, let's see what happens when your uterus is damaged. That was enough for Randy. He got off the couch and put himself between Amy and Daryl. Enough. Let's get some food. We'll work things out. I want you both out of the house, Amy said. This is my house, Daryl said. Nothing is in your name, you worthless leech. Maybe we should go, Daryl, Randy said. I'm not getting thrown out of my own house. But I am hungry. Daryl let Randy move him toward the front door, but he turned back toward Amy before they left. Don't leave, 
we'll be back. Randy drove and they ended up out at a strip club near the airport that had a good lunch buffet. They took seats between the main stage and a smaller stage to the left. A cowgirl with brown leather g-string and frilly nipple tassels was in the middle of her st main stage act while an older woman in a negligee was warming up the side stage. Randy wanted to get to the buffet where they were refilling the wings, but Daryl was still talking about Amy. He'd been talking about Amy since they left. So leave her, Randy finally said. Can we eat now? She's your sister. You don't want this marriage to survive? Not like this. Nobody's happy, especially me. I want wings. Daryl didn't answer. He focused his attention on the cowgirl. So Randy sat down next to him and ordered a Budweiser from the waitress, who was cuter in her short shorts and tank top than either of the strippers. A few minutes later, when Daryl stood up, Randy thought they were finally going to eat. But Daryl went up to the main stage and sat down along the runway. Randy went to the buffet anyway. He had beer in his system now and couldn't survive on an empty stomach. Daryl was back at their table when Randy, when Randy returned from the buffet. We hit the load this time. The wings are fresh and they've got Swiss steak and fries and mac and cheese. I'm not the bad guy, Daryl said. I shouldn't be the one to leave. As the waitress went by, I need another beer. You want to split a pitcher? I don't want to leave, but I don't want her to leave either. How do I get her to realize we're not meant for kids? Do I look like a fucking counselor? You look like a pig. Give me some of those wings. Randy smiled. Things were going to be okay. They split five more pitchers and cleaned out the buffet twice over before the lunch shift wound down. The last time their waitress came by, she asked them if they wouldn't mind closing out their tab because she was leaving. What time is it? Daryl asked. Almost five. Ah, shit, we gotta go. Daryl threw a $50 bill at the waitress and told her to keep the change and to make sure the cowgirl got something out of it, too. Then he grabbed Randy and pulled him toward the door. The bank's closed now, he told him. There's an ATM over in the corner. It's kind of the sperm bank, Daryl said. The waitress gave him a raised look but took the money and disappeared. We're still doing that, Randy asked. Nothing's changed. You don't want to go back and work things out with, there's nothing to work out. We still need the money. That's not going to change. Then I'm your driver, Randy said. The only other business in the strip mall was a dollar store that didn't have any customers. Daryl wasn't taking any chances, though, so he stopped a block away and took off the license plate from the back of the car. Randy pulled the car up to the front of the clinic and kept it running and acted as a lookout while Daryl went in to get the specimen. A few minutes later, Daryl came out with an orange cup just like the one Randy had left with earlier. It was long past four hours since the sample had been collected, so Randy figured he'd have to think further about it if he decided he wanted to pursue little kids. Say hello to the future Mr. Kyle Smith Jr. You're not really going to put that in Amy, are you? Drive. And no, we've got four hours for Mr. Smith to cough up the cash to get his boys back. After that, we flush it. Well, then why would he pay if he can just make another uh, deposit? Amy said he's getting chemo. He's got the cancer. This is his last batch. Oh, Randy said as he pulled out of the parking lot. He thought he saw a black sedan pull out a few lots down at the same time, but Daryl distracted him with a cell phone call. Won't they be able to track that phone to you? Bought it with cash at the gas station, Daryl said. The reception is crap out here. We'll have to wait until we get back to the house. Amy's car was still in the driveway when Randy pulled up. He looked at Daryl for a clue, but Daryl was trying the cell phone again. Randy looked around while he waited for Daryl to finish the call and thought he saw the black sedan again, but it turned down a different street and Daryl tapped him on the shoulder. We're go, he said. They said they pay? Drops in 30 minutes. Daryl patted the orange cup and Randy followed him into the house. Amy was on the couch in the living room. The vomit was still behind the couch and Daryl was the first to notice it. 
you can't even clean up while we're gone. It's a good thing we're not starting a family. That's what you think, she said, not moving from the couch. What do you mean? Randy sensed another fight coming, so he went to the kitchen. He opened the freezer and was looking for an ice cream sandwich when he noticed the orange cup on the counter. It was tipped over and there was a syringe next to it. Randy gagged a little as his stomach clenched. He slammed the freezer and grabbed the cup and syringe and went into the living room. Tell me you didn't. Not right now, Randy, Daryl said. But I think she, yes I did, Amy said standing. She was still dressed in the robe and was holding a plastic jug of vodka that was more than half empty. I blew your little plan. What are you talking about, Daryl asked. Randy held out the cup and the syringe. Amy grabbed them and threw them at Daryl. You don't want to have a baby with me? I'll have one with Kyle Smith. Where did that come from? Don't act like you didn't see this coming, she said. No, where did you get that sample? You left it here. Don't try and mess with my head, Daryl. Daryl pulled Smith's sample out of his pocket and held it out to her. This is Kyle Smith's sample, he said. Where did you get that? You left it on the counter, she said. Randy was crying by now, and Daryl was starting to figure out what happened. Go get my gun, Randy, he said. We can still blackmail Smith. He'll still pay, Amy said. What are you going to do, Daryl? I said get my gun. Randy went to the car like he was told while Amy cuddled Daryl. What are you thinking, babe? Don't do anything drastic. That was Randy's sperm, you conniving bitch. You impregnated yourself with your brother's load. Amy's face went pale, and Daryl thought she was going to throw up again. Instead, she said, cocksucker. I didn't do this, but I'll take care of it for you. Like hell you will, Amy said. I'll go to a doctor. Before Daryl could respond, he saw someone come back into the house. He thought it was Randy with his gun until he turned and saw the square man from the clinic. He had Randy next to him with a gun pointed at his head. Where's the sample, Mr. Abbott? How the fuck do you know my name? Mr. Smith hired me to protect the sample. I didn't like the look of you, so I investigated you. How dare you, Daryl said, walking toward him. Just give him the sample, Randy said. We'll figure something out. Daryl pointed at the empty cup and syringe on the floor. There is no more sample. We already put it in my wife. What are you doing? Amy asked. Mr. Smith will have to pay us not to tell anyone when this baby is born, Daryl said. The square man looked at the cup and the syringe, then at Amy and her jug of vodka. That baby's not going to be born, he said, shooting Amy in the stomach. She gasped and crumpled to the floor while Randy used the second the gun was away from his head to pull his own gun from his pocket. He shot the square man in the chest, then turned the gun on Daryl. You don't deserve my sister, he said. Then he shot Daryl in the head. Randy grabbed the cell phone from Daryl's pocket and called 911, then fell down next to his sister. He'd lost jobs because of his dick. He'd lost women because of his dick. And now he almost lost his sister because of his dick. He waited until he heard the siren close in on the house before putting Daryl's gun between his leg and pulling the trigger. <laughs> Next up is Frank Wheeler. Frank is from Nebraska, but has been calling Wisconsin home for a couple of years now. His first book is available for sale here by Richard tonight. And look for The Good Life, coming soon. Hello. I apologize in advance. I apologize in advance for what I'm about to do to you. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I've got a couple of s 
samples here. First one is from the Wowser. Let's see. This is written in um, Arkansas Ozarks dialect, which I do not speak. Um, I have several relatives who do. Uh, the closest I can come is uh, Central Texas uh, Plains, which is some of my childhood was in Texas. So I'll have to slip back into that for a minute. Uh, so if you can tell the difference between hillbilly and cowboy, uh, I apologize. Otherwise, just forget what I said. <laughs> the only thing you need to know about this section is that uh, Jerry is a Madison County, Arkansas deputy, and he's not a nice person. <laughs> I think that's, that's all you need to know. <clears throat> It's missed in at four. Don't take long to find the car. Unmarked cop car, but Tom told me what to look for. Gray Mercury Sable, early 2000s. <clears throat> I park in a space along the north side of the town square, watching the car right outside the sheriff's station. Five after four. Mist has turned to light rain. He ought to be coming out now. The station door opens and I see him come out in his cheap gray suit and lift up his umbrella. I send the text message to Freddie. I follow the sable down. Uh, I follow the sable through uh, through town. Sorry, down Main Street, then onto Highway 412. He's staying at Shawnee's Motel. Right when he gets past the city limits, right near the highway intersection, I put the patrol car's lights on. Get right up on his ass. After about 10 seconds, he pulls over onto the shoulder. I park behind him, grab the laptop in the front seat, wrap it in a black trash bag so it don't get wet, grab the denim sack, get out of the patrol car and shut the door, approach on the passenger side of the sable. Door ain't locked, so I just open it and slide on in, shut it and shake some of the rain off my head. What the hell, he says when he realizes just who got in his car. This is highly inappropriate, Deputy Bowden. I have to ask you to step out of the car right now. I just look at him for a second. I fish one of my cigarettes out of the pack in my shirt pocket, light it and crack the window. You can't smoke in here, Mr. Bowden. Shit, you can't even be in here. I'm afraid I'm going to have to inform your superiors of this. You need to get out before this gets any worse for you. Do you have any idea how much trouble you're getting yourself right into right now, Mr. Bowden? Call me Jerry say and toss the denim sack into his lap what the hell is this he says opens it state police detective Michael McKinnon white male 39 six foot 175 pounds gray and brown hair brown eyes looking into a bag that got 25 bundles of hundreds making up 10 grand each quarter mil I say deputy Bowden don't insult me did you think I'd actually consider taking this from you? I mean, I'd heard about the way business is done in the backwoods, sure, but come on, you can't seriously expect me to just drop the case because you throw some money my way. For starters, I don't want to. I've got you cold on this. Do you and Sheriff Haskell? And you both know that. After today, after this, Deputy Bowden, it's a slam dunk. 
I tap my ash on the window. Breathe the smoke up. Uh, breathe the smoke up of the crack into the rain. When I was a kid, I say, I always heard my grandma say, carrot or the stick. You heard that expression before? I guess you probably have. You're an educated man. Jerry, might I ask what the fuck you think you're doing? Don't get testy. Not yet, just listen. I say. Like I was saying, my grandma said it one way. And then, when I got to school, I heard my teachers and all my other classmates say it, the carrot and the stick, or even the carrot on a stick. Now this confused me. Mike, you don't mind if I call you Mike. Don't answer. I don't really give a fuck. I drag on my cigarette again and tap the ash on the sleeve of his suit. When I got older and knew how to look in a dictionary, and not just any dictionary, but the one the school librarian showed me when I asked the question, it said that the phrase was just like my grandma had said, the carrot or the stick. You see, my folks never dangled carrots from sticks to get a mule moving. No siree. That carrot was a reward for the mule. The stick was punishment if it misbehaved. It'd get beat if it didn't do as it was told. The thing everybody else was saying, that whole carrot on a stick thing, that was just a corruption. That's what the dictionary said. A corruption of the original. I take the laptop out of the bag. I open it to the black screen and move my finger on the mouse pad. Blow away the ash flakes that fall on the keys. The screen comes to life. West 11th Street, Forest Hills, just outside of Little Rock. What the fuck are you talking? He starts, uh, he starts to cuss at me, but the screen kills that. A two-story light blue house with a red door and a fat linden tree in the front yard, uh, front walk comes up. Hanging from the linden tree is a tire swing, knots up the rope. Karen, Christina, Victoria, and Michael Jr. are all hoping right now that you take the carrot. But you gotta tell me if it's gonna be the carrot or the stick. You unbelievable bastard, he says. Because there's a man inside the car there, just waiting out on the street to go in and meet him all for dinner. What's Karen cooking tonight? Want me to make a call and have him find out? You can't be fucking serious, Jerry. This isn't real. You aren't really saying this. And he's looking at pictures of them spread out across his lap, and he's thinking right now, should I go from oldest to youngest or youngest to oldest? Hell of a thing to decide. Mike looks at me and is almost uh, is almost white. Shudders. Uh, then does it again. Then he has to open the driver's side door to vomit onto the highway shoulder. Ain't got all day for it. Carrot of the stick. Okay. Uh, I've got two shorter pieces here from my new book called, uh, I don't know, <laughs> Good Life. Uh, this is set in Nebraska, so I only have to do my Nebraska accent. <laughs> um, let's see, same protagonist, say Junior Earl, that's his name, uh, Sheriff Earl, and he's a bad apple, like, uh, Jerry, 
but uh, not quite as bad, we'll say. Not quite. All right. We'll start with this one. Uh, his wife's name is uh, Camila, and she's referenced, but she's never actually in this section. I'll just start. I quit cocaine a month after Camila left me. I remember exactly the reason. I woke up in my easy chair, head pounding, with a 1911 Model 45 in my lap. Didn't recognize the gun. The slide was in the lockback position, serial number ground out. There was a ski mask on the coffee table. Last I'd known, it was Monday night. The morning paper, under the ski mask, said Thursday. I must have come home wearing it, picked up the paper on my way in. I got up and went into the bathroom. Skin looked bad in the mirror, sweaty, blotched. Turned on the faucet and stoppered the sink to wash my face. Leather gloves still on. Pulled them off and let them drop in the basin. Stood at the sink, looking back and forth from the mirror to the basin. Put my hands in my pockets. Felt the brass casings in my right pockets. Pocket. Counted seven, which is a full magazine on a 1911. That meant the only thing I did wrong was to forget to take off the ski mask. I was on autopilot for Christ knows what, and probably made just the one mistake. Then I felt the casings in my left pocket. No, they weren't casings. Small and hard, but too heavy. Grabbed a handful from what was in there, pulled them out, counted out nine teeth in my palm. Must be a full set in my pocket. I'd have needed flyers. Probably there were some at the scene, wherever that was. I watched the water fill up around the gloves in the basin. Okay, a little more action in this one. Um, okay, you know who Earl is? Sheriff of Linden County, Nebraska. New sheriff, let's see. Who else is in this? Um, Eddie, Big Eddie, his uh, first cousin once removed, deputy. Who else? They're talking about Mikey. Mikey is Earl's younger brother, definition of a screw up. Uh, okay. Mikey follows me back to Linden. I can see him talking on a cell in the mirror, so I reduce my speed to 75. That's an add-on ticket, uh, add-on to a ticket if he gets pulled over for speeding, and he doesn't need anything else to piss him off today. I drop off my truck at the sheriff's station and get in his car. We're supposed to meet Eddie now and talk over what happened with Howie, then see Dad. That's a huge step for Mikey. I gotta pick up my kid later, so this needs to be quick, Mikey says uh, when we get to the truck stop. You don't need me for this, right? Leave it running, I say, slamming the door. Junior, you owe me lunch, Eddie says when I walk into the south of town uh, truck stop diner. Like pizza, kid? You're late. You pay for it. Mikey threw a hissy fit, I say. Had to calm him down. That boy's going to fuck this up yet, Eddie says. I sit down and take a 20 out of my wallet, sit on the table, motion the waitress. Glass of water and a basket of fries, I say. You ain't eating? Eddie says. In a hurry, I say. Besides, Mikey ruined my appetite. That fucking kid's... Eddie doesn't finish the sentence. 
door to the diner opens as the waitress walks away. A Caucasian man in a torn blue denim jacket with a buzz cut and a tattoo on his neck walks in raising a sawed-off 12-gauge pump from under his jacket. Eddie can see my face, <coughs> Eddie can see from my face something's wrong and shifts his weight to move out of his seat. I clear the pistol from my holster, but without even a second to aim, I just squeeze the trigger fast in his direction twice. One hits. Blood bursts out of his left thigh. He staggers, and his shotgun goes off. Eddie's arm is braced on the outside of the table to move, uh, to move his way as he stands. The blast rips it away above the elbow. The heat from it shuts my eyes, and the force shakes my whole frame. Eddie's forearm bumps my chest and lands in my lap. Eddie falls back in his seat and the man as the man behind him grabs at his leg and drops the shotgun. I move out of the booth and let Eddie's half limb fall under the table. My instinct is to shoot the perp twice through the central nervous system, but people are watching. The waitress, a few customers, they're in shock, but they'll tell what, uh, what they saw. Can't fire if he's dropped his gun, and I want to know who sent him. Now the shooter's leaning back against the stool at the counter, screaming about the pain in his leg. Eddie's looking at his stump, mouth, uh, moving his mouth, trying to say something. 9-11, I yell at the waitress. Now! That's when people in the diner start screaming. I close the distance to the shooter, put my boot in his stomach, crack him over the back of the head of my Glock when he doubles over, force him on his stomach, and slap my cuffs on one wrist. He starts fighting when he feels the click. I slam the heel of my hand down, twi uh, down into his bicep a few times to numb him, then force his whole arm behind his back, click on his other wrist. I take off my belt and make a loop. Hold still, I yell in Eddie's ear. Blood is free-flowing from his stump and filling out the tabletop, spreading under our plates and soaking into our napkins. I pull the loop tighter on the wound. Blood swells from the slivers of flesh, then stops completely. I wrap the belt around it several times and tie it off. I'm not in uniform now, so I move back over Eddie's shoulder and click his radio. He's convulsing. Officer down, I yelled at dispatch. Highway diner on 81 south of town. One armed suspect neutralized, possibly more suspects. Send back up now. This is Sheriff Hack. Get to it. With one hand, I hold the binding around Eddie's arm. With the other, I aim my block at the shooter. The shot must have broken his femur because he can't move his leg when he tries to wiggle around to get up. He screams again. There's a lot of blood around him. Please, Jesus Christ, God damn it, I need help. I'm gonna fucking die, God damn it, I say. Only have so many hands, fucker. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, and once more, you just listened to Ruth Jordan, Brian Quartermus, and Frank Wheeler Jr. at the nor at the Cantina uh, in Milwaukee. Right. So we kicked it off with uh, an excerpt from Little Blue Pill, which was um, kind of disturbing. The, the <laughs> you know kind of basic instincty kind of uh, woman is going to kill you while having sex and then not stop. Although, I guess if you're dead, what do you care, right, at that point? Hey, well, if there's a way to go out, first of all, that's going to be one of the better ones. Yeah, um, yeah. Second of all, I think she really did, like, <laughs> the basic instinct analogy is good. But you made a good point. She did kind of up the stakes by just kind of, like, keeping on going after the person was dead. 
Yeah, so uh, let's let's put that not safe for work spoiler alert in there for what you just heard. Oh uh, yeah, because then we we went we went from uh, from kind of nasty to to really goddamn nasty, right? So Mr. Quatermus with his story about a sperm bank robbery, you know, I, I don't know if that's ever been done before, but just putting the word <laughs> bank kind of begs for that robbery thing but like you know ski masks and guns like like we're gonna take all the i don't know all the specimens i don't know put them all in a bag put them all in one jar let's get them out of here <laughs> you know it's a brilliant thought though because like who's gonna try to be a hero at a sperm bank robbery right like everybody's like kind of caught with their pants down <laughs> oh nice, nice. <laughs> if you want if you want more i've, I've got more where that came from I don't know. It's kind of oh, it's like a who shot first situation. Oh God, this is terrible. This is terrible. I apologize to Frank Wheeler Jr. Whose who's readings we're going to talk about next. Um, uh, <laughs> I had to. Had to be done. Um, I do want to say before we jump on to Frank Wheeler, it was really nice to meet. Well, first of all, uh, meet Ruth Jordan again. Everybody, obviously, but. Um, We'd, we'd recently been, uh, as a podcast, growing our relationship with Exhibit A Books. So meeting Brian, who has um, such a f- uh, critical role in, in choosing the books that are getting published by Exhibit A was really nice because, like, you know, without some of his efforts, we might not have been reading um, Penance and Greed and um, the Bartholomew Daniels books and um, looking forward to the Nick Corbon book that's coming out and, and Rob Hart's book and, and a ton of stuff. So it was really nice to kind of, like, talk to him and, and get more just conversationally know more about his his you know his standards and his process and what makes and makes the decisions that he does to get these books it was it was a, it was a nice uh, I had a lot of t- fun talking to him I just gave him four manuscripts <laughs> Livius is like this is the book I'm working on it's about a girl but she can kind of talk to birds and when she touches you she sees when you die Anyway. <laughs> that was one of them. The other three were all <laughs> vampire romances. <laughs> nice. Yep. Um, so that after Brian, you heard from Frank Wheeler Jr. and excerpts from The Wowser and The Good Life. Um, I kind of, uh, and you know, of course, I heard this all like a week and a half ago. Um, do you remember the character? I liked, I liked the character, the cop character that he read, the sheriff. Right, yeah, because I also didn't hear this from like a week ago. I don't know the name of the sheriff, but yeah, good character. Yeah, so that's how yeah. well prepared we are for this episode. But yeah, I kind of like that that feel. Well, you you have an excuse. I have the audio, so you don't have access to re-listen to it. I have no excuse. This is true. This is all your fault. Anyway, great fault. readings from three great writers um, and a great great part one, I think, right? Yeah, and um, you're going to hear more about the, the other half of the reading, but um, I think we should talk a little bit about, uh, 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 unlike most readings we go to, our, our night didn't end when the reading ended. We actually got to hang out with like the entire cast of the reading um, at a very cozy location. Yeah, so be warned that if you ever invite Rob and I into your home, we will spill all of your personal <laughs> information right onto the podcast. It's <laughs> going on the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, so um, John and Ruth Jordan, um, who live nearby the venue, um, invited everybody back over for a party. And, you know, you expect to go into someone's house and you, know, you expect to walk into, like, you know, your standard living room, dining room, kitchen kind of thing. No, 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 not not, not the Jordans. 
Um, yeah, it was like a. It, it's kind of difficult to describe, but it's quite a large building that I guess is owned by their family, and um, you know, is being put to use for different different parts being put to use for different things. But going upstairs to the kind of their living and um, the crime spree kind of headquarters area, uh, it looks like a, an old school kind of office building in a way. Um, but you'd expect like a detective, like a private eye, to be to running an office out of one of them, uh, one of the like one of the little offshoots. To be late, to be late paying that? his rent on that office, right? Is that what you meant? Like to be <laughs> yeah. almost evicted from that office? The, yeah, the private like, detective. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a Yorkshire Terrier is in there somewhere, and a bunch of like empty bottles of booze. Um, yep. Uh, yeah, so we got a, we, we got a nice tour of of where all the crime spree magic happens and. Um, kind of a probably a better perspective of how much crime spree magic there really is, at least for me. Dude, it is one of the coolest goddamn places I think I've ever been to. Coolest abodes. I mean, someone's like home slash office area. Because um, I didn't realize that there are actually posters of books. This has never occurred to me in 40 years, whatever, 35 years of reading, that there are actually posters <laughs> for books. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that is the case. And they're all um, over the wall, signed by by authors. Um, it just it's it's insane, and and that just that just starts the 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 cool crazy. Yeah, that's just like the tip of the iceberg. Um, and then yeah, they're they're they obviously they have a ton of books. They've got lots of I don't want to say memorabilia, but like things they've gotten from things that they've attended and been to and people they've met and everything. So it's, it's like a, a book nerds dream come true, especially if you're into the crime, uh, genre very much. Um, it was really fun to get a peek into their world. They were super nice hosts too, obviously. Absolutely. And I have to say that, um, you know, sometimes you, you see somebody's collection of something and you're envious of it, but I think I was envious of about four different collections of things I saw. (laughs) <laughs> like DVDs and Legos and like action figures. It was just yeah, record insane. albums. Yeah, yeah. Ins- I didn't even notice record albums. Were there were there record albums too? I think so. I think in that main, um, that main kind of like sitting room area. I thought there was a mm-hmm. bunch of records. I could be wrong. Well, I think I think that's where I spent the least amount of time. So, yeah. at any rate, um, very very cool place. Maybe we'll get the Jordans to invite us over uh, for for like a sleepover, like a booked slumber party. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I will say too is like you get into this um, when you get into this world, and a lot of the people we know got into the the book world by being authors, and we kind of backdoored into the book world by being reviewers, which I think was the smartest thing we've ever done. Um, and there's just things that you don't prepare yourself mentally for, like um, you're, you're hanging out at someone's house and and it's cool, and you're talking to all these people, and you're hearing stories, and and you know. It's great, and then suddenly you realize that you know the 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 people from Crime Spree magazine are hang are, have you in their house, and they're like making pasta for Hillary Davidson, and you're just not mentally prepared for like that kitchen hangout scene. It was, it's yep. interesting. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> much much fun to be had there, and not just that, but of course, in true Rob fashion, what does Rob do? He gets himself another job while he's there too. Yeah, um, I just can't help it. Uh, well, and I actually have a little bit of a story for this. So I was talking to John about, uh, I was asking permission to record uh, the event for the podcast. And initially he had some uh, ambitions to do 
kind of a bigger multimedia thing, but with the change of venues and some other things that happened last minute, it just wasn't possible. So it was really fortuitous that he um, had given us permission to to do the recording. Um, but we're on the phone talking about it, and he says, just casually says something like, yeah, why don't you write up something about Noir at the Bar for um, when we post it on, you know, we, we'll post that on the website for Crime Spree and link to your episodes. And idiot me, this is almost, this is like... <laughs> This almost goes back to when we were trying to get up the Warmed and Bound interviews uh, put together. <laughs> I asked this really innocent question that, in retrospect, I, I probably didn't realize what I was saying. I said, oh, you mean, like, write up uh, the event in Milwaukee or, like, kind of a history of the whole thing? There's, like, a beat of silence, and he's like, yeah, the history sounds really good. It's like, damn it, now I have to write a history of an event that took place in, like, 20 different places over the course of, like, six years. So. Nice job, Rob. Nice job. This is why I don't talk to people on the phone, by the way. Exactly what just happened to you. <laughs> um, so, uh, the magic of time time travel and podcasting. The article is not complete yet, but by the time that you are listening to this, it will have been posted. So, either be sure to click on the link in our post on the website to get over to that article to, to hear the very rich and, and very powerful history of, of what the overall meaning of Noir at the Bar is. Um, and if you happen to have come to us from Crime Spree, welcome, because you may not have listened to us before, so uh, we're happy to have you. Yeah, I say shame on you for this being your first time, but it's okay, because you can listen to all 200-plus episodes available at iTunes, Stitcher, I, I won't go off in my advertising voice. <laughs> Tune in radio, podcast.com. That's right. Um, you are no but, longer dead to live welcome. That's right, yep. So, yeah, head over, read the article of Crime Spree. I haven't even read this article yet, but I will when it's available. Um, and then don't forget to come back for part two of Noir at the Cantina slash bar in Milwaukee. Coming soon. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. <laughs>